Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Historically, marriage was understood to be a conjugal relationship. That is to say, a bond uniting a man and a woman as husband and wife in a partnership shaped by its special aptness for conceiving and rearing children. Thus, its norms included sexual complementarity, exclusivity, fidelity, and a pledge of permanence. In 2015, the Supreme Court of the United States, in the case of Obergefell versus Hodges, held that states could no longer define marriage as a distinctly male-female bond. The court required all 50 states to eliminate the norm of sexual complementarity so that relationships of same-sex partners could be recognized as marriages. To many Americans, justice had triumphed, bigotry had been defeated, so-called marriage equality would usher in a golden era of tolerance, and there would be absolutely no negative repercussions. Those people and institutions, such as religious bodies, who cling to the idea of marriage as a conjugal bond and therefore oppose the sweeping change, were henceforth to be treated as not just defeated foes in a series of court cases, but as hate-filled yahoos suffering from a form of moral insanity. This was despite the fact that those who believed that marriages between one man and one woman were assured repeatedly by their opponents throughout the period up until Obergefeld and by the majority itself in that decision that they had nothing to fear from what was, they insisted, a mere extension of marriage and not its redefinition. They were told no harm would result to either individuals of conscience or to parents or children who would now be brought up in a world in which marriage is defined as basically an emotional union between adults of whatever sex, not one based on the bodily union of a man and a woman made possible by their sexual reproductive complementarity. When defenders of the conjugal view of marriage pointed out that its legal abolition left no principal basis for norms such as permanence, monogamy, and fidelity, their arguments were for the most part went unaddressed, except for the occasional candid critic, such as the gay activist writer Michelangelo Signorile, who replied that the abolition of traditional norms of morality represented a form of liberation from outmoded strictures. The norms were to be relegated to the history books, and those who expressed allegiance to them were to find themselves increasingly in danger of losing their jobs, their businesses, and their rights to educate their children in their own beliefs. The authors of a book published in 2012 and in 2020 out in a second edition with a powerful new afterwards saw all of this coming. That book was What is Marriage? Man and Woman, a Defense by Sharif Girgis, Ryan T. Anderson, and Robert P. George. We will talk to Mr. Anderson about the new edition of the book and what he and his co-authors got right about what was likely to happen in terms of religious freedom generally and in areas such as foster care and adoption assistance in a same-sex marriage world and what even he and his co-authors did not foresee. 
All of this affects all of us. Give a listen. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope J. Lemon, and I'm one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I'm talking today with Ryan T. Anderson, one of the three authors of the book, What is Marriage, Man and Woman? A Defense by Sharif Gerges, Ryan T. Anderson, and Robert P. George. This is a second edition of a book published originally in 2012. Thank you for joining us today, Ryan. Happy to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm delighted, and you're quite an amazing young scholar, considering you've had two major books published very early in your career. So it's it's wonderful to have you on your debut on the New Books Network. Thank you. Let's start by discussing. Thank. Well, well, it's well deserved, and I wish I had accomplished as much in my whole life as you've accomplished already. Let's start by discussing terminology. In the book, you refer to those who believed in the tradition, who believe in the traditional view of marriage as between one man and one woman, as holders of the conjugal view and those who advocated for same-sex marriage as the revisionists. Does that, does that terminology still hold, given what, with the Obergefell decision, the revisionists should perhaps now be renamed the redefiners? Should those who hold the conjugal view be dubbed the marriage traditionalists? Uh, p- perhaps, because uh, what we were looking for was less a description of kind of um, uh, 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 popularity or, you know, who's who's the traditional side and who's the um, redefiners. Although I do think redefiners fits. Uh, What we liked about the conjugal understanding of marriage as a part to the traditional understanding of marriage is that it actually expressed something about what we think marriage is. What what is the nature of marriage? Uh, And not simply that this view was the historic one or this view was a traditional one. You know, lots of things in human history, lots of human traditions um, uh, have been wrong or have been misguided, have been abusive, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what we wanted to emphasize was that this was the vision of marriage that took the body seriously and therefore took conjugal union uh, seriously, that, 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 that mm-hmm. took um, the ability of people to unite as one flesh uh, seriously. And that the revisionist view, um, what it was doing in, in, its, in its revision Uh, was saying that what really matters are that two people unite emotionally or spiritually or um, uh, romantically and that the body fosters uh, that union. You know, the body can uh, help kind of um, uh, 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 foster tender, loving feelings. It can help um, uh, express love and devotion. But the body in all of those situations is playing an instrumental role for the uh, emotional union, a romantic union, or spiritual union, it's not playing an essential role as part of an interpersonal union that includes the body as personal. Uh, and, it's, and it's the conjugal view of marriage uh, that includes that, because the conjugal view of marriage uh, takes our sexual embodiment seriously, and therefore it takes seriously the type of union um, that a male and a female body can have. And because our bodies are personal, it's not just a union of the bodies, it's a bodily union of the persons, and therefore it's a personal uh, union. That's very helpful. I wonder, how would, you, how would you describe yourself? Would you say, I am a believer in the conjugal view, or is there a shorter form to refer to yourself? I'm just thinking of how, how, how uh, let's sort of an elevator pitch view. Uh, what, 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 is there a one word that would work, or just holder of the conjugal view? So what, what I um, tend to do when I talk to people is, is, is describe it um, – in a subsequent book, I described it as the comprehensive view of marriage uh, because it's, it's, it's a view in which um, the, the spouses unite comprehensively 
And that, that then explains why um, the bodily union is essential. That if you're going to unite comprehensively with another person, it's going to be a union of all aspects of your of your identity. And that means it's going to be a spiritual union. It's going to be a romantic union. It's going to be an emotional union, but it's also going to be a bodily union because that's part of uh, who you are. And that then also explains um, the goods that the union is ordered towards, a comprehensive set of goods, the goods of the spouses and then um, procreation and family life, and then also comprehensive uh, commitments. Um, And I can't remember now if we use um, uh, the comprehensive uh, language and what is marriage as well. Uh, but but I, I think, uh, I don't know if there's a one word um, summary. Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, yeah, I, was just, I, just, I didn't want to pin you down on that too much, but I just thought it was, I don't think you use the term comprehensive very extensively in, in the book. It's mostly conjugal. Conjugal, okay. So, yeah, but I'm not sure. I, I'll have to go back. I, and that gives me excuse to go back to it because it's, it's really worth many reads more than one read. <laughs> Um, speaking of which, why did you? Why have you published a second edition? What has what has changed in particular in the post Bergefeld era that you felt needed to be addressed? I, I just want to quote one one thing that is. I think when you talk about the body, this is significant because you just you just addressed that issue. You and Robert George, for example, say interestingly afterward of this of the second edition of twenty twenty. What we didn't predict were the headlines about transgender and non binary identities. A decade ago, few Americans had given much thought to the T in LGBT. Today, transgender identity dominates the discussion of sexuality and sexual morality. There's a logic here. If we can't see the point of our sexual embodiment where it matters most in marriage, we'll question if it matters at all. Hence the push to see gender as fluid and existing along a spectrum of of non-binary options. That's your quote. Indeed, much of your own work, such as your famous 2018 book, When Harry Became Sally, which is a wonderful title, Responding to the Transgender Moment, deals with that issue. Could you tell us how the same-sex marriage ruling emboldened the transgender activists? And, and how, I wonder, has, that, has the transgender kind of capture of the, of the whole sexual morality um, landscape, has that dismayed the, the same-sex marriage advocates who, after all, tried to portray the same-sex marriage as, as, as rather conservative? It was extending the, uh, the benefits of marriage in a sort of bourgeois, non-threatening way. And transgenderism is, is much more revolutionary. Is there, is there a tension between that? And did, and did the same-sex people anticipate that? Uh, great did. questions. <laughs> and, um, and, and there are, there's, there's a lot in those questions. So, so, so let me um, take them in turn and please, you know, follow up if I, you know, miss any aspect of the question. I mean, the very first thing you asked about was, you know, why put out a new edition? Uh, hmm. And the simple answer there is that, um, you know, the publisher had sold out of, of copies, so they needed to do <laughs> a, a, another, another printing. And I forget which... What a great problem which, to have. I wish I had a problem with that. <laughs> And, and I forget which printing this this was, but you know enough time had passed that they said, mm. you know, if we're going to have to do another printing anyway, you know, are there things that you would want to update? And the only real um, update to the second edition is um, the afterward. Um, but yeah, the reason why how well, it, how well it holds up, just as I mean, you, the afterward is is powerful and wonderful in itself. But the book from the twenty twelve, very little has changed except except one shakes as a reader one says, "That's amazing how how they called everything that was going to happen with such eerie prescience." It's just remarkable how how on target you were. Well, yeah, so so it almost looks like what what, what we wrote in twenty twelve as predictions exactly. now in twenty twenty look like. Wait, you're just telling us what happened. You're recording history rather than 
predicting it. Exactly. Um, but a couple of reasons of why we wanted the book to stay in print. You know, why why put out a new edition? Why do another printing? And the first is that just because the Supreme Court um, got a uh, a legal case wrong, that doesn't actually change the truth about what marriage is. Mm. Uh, and so the title of the book, What is Marriage? Subtitle, Man and Woman, A Defense, that still needs defending today. And in mm. fact, it probably needs more defending today because you know, the debate that we had between 2012 and 2015 when the court redefined marriage uh, was about what is the correct definition of marriage. And the court gets that wrong. But now we're having a debate about what should be the legal status, the moral status, the cultural status of people who still believe the truth about marriage. You know, should they be ostracized? Should they be, you know, banished from polite society? Should we be shutting down their bakeries, their photography studios, their schools, their adoption agencies? And we're going to be seeing more and more of that during the Biden administration. You know, already we're seeing calls uh, from activists saying that, you know, they should be revoking the nonprofit tax status of bigoted schools are bigoted. And I'm using scare quotes when I say that, uh, churches. And so part of this, uh, the reason why we wanted to uh, put out the new edition of the book this year was to argue that it's not bigoted, right? This only, not only is this view of marriage uh, not in any way predicated on any animosity or any uh, hostility towards anyone, but this view of marriage is true, Right? So we also don't want to be retreating just to the religious liberty ground in which, well, look, I just have an idiosyncratic, like weird religious belief. Just leave me alone to tend my garden. Um, uh, we think that the religious liberty on these issues um, will stand or fall with how society as a whole views the disputed question. Uh, well, I think it, I think that's that's really important in, in that the book you make that point that it's not primarily a religious issue. In fact, you make the point that it's not about homosexuality at all. It's about marriage and the redefinition of marriage. And you write, legal definition was about the def, redef, about legal recognition was about the definition of marriage for all of society. It was about affirmation by the government and by everyone else. And then you continue. It was never about live and let live. That was merely a tactical stance. Which is why you saw so quickly um, that, you know, the the slogan for one of the organizations was freedom to marry. Um, And it wasn't just about freedom to marry, which is why you then saw um, the bakers being sued, the florists being sued, the photographers being sued, the adoption agencies being sued. Uh, Because if it was just about the freedom to marry, right, if two men or two women want to be free to live with each other, they want to be free to go to the government to get marriage recognition in the eyes of the state. So, you know, it's obviously it's more than just about freedom. And and uh, Justice Thomas points this out in his dissenting opinion on Obergefell saying, wait, if this is about um, liberty, you were already free to live how you want to live. You wanted the government to recognize and to affirm. And now we see it wasn't just about government recognition. It's also about recognition in the eyes of society as a whole, uh, meaning um, that other people need to uh, recognize, affirm, celebrate, um, not withhold their affirmation. And so if that means that there's a baker who won't do the same-sex wedding cake, if there's a photographer who won't do the same-sex wedding um, uh, photos, flowers who won't do the, the flowers, um, those are all um, committing what the, the, the legal scholars on the left call, they're committing dignitary harms, right? Mm-hmm. They're not causing material harms, they're not causing physical harms, but they're harming the dignity 
And how are they harming the dignity? By disagreeing, right? We're now saying that if you disagree and your disagreement takes the shape of, you know, refusing to help cater the wedding, celebrate the wedding, photograph, you know, photograph the wedding, capture the wedding in, in, in the album, et cetera, et cetera, that the type of harm that you're committing is a harm to one's dignity. And that just strikes me as the end of the ability of having, you know, pluralism and reasonable, you know, disagreement if uh, we're now going to be redefining forms of disagreement as as harms. Yeah, I was just going to say that people may not realize, well, I'm not a, I don't, I don't have a small business, therefore I'm not affected by this. I'm not a florist. I'm not a photographer, but it's in the workplace. It's everywhere. It's not, it's not just, in fact, it's in, it's not a religious issue. I'm just thinking of if I were in an office these days and more and more people be insulated from this because there are now so many people working at home. So they may think, well, this is kind of off the front burner because I won't be forced to have a, a transgender gay rights flag on my desk or, or sign or sign off on a petition that my the corporate head speaks, you know, for example, if, if someone, if they're the head of your corporation issues a, 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 a manifesto and you say a, a Facebook post about it, or you tweet that, well, I know this is not me. And then you're fired and so forth. But I think that the, the fact that you talk about the affirmation of it, it's not just tolerance. It quickly became, could you talk about the concept of compelled speech in that respect? Sure. I mean, compelled speech was one of the big legal arguments that was um, uh, advanced by the lawyers for Jack Phillips. Uh, Jack Phillips was the the cake artist. Um, his, his his business is named Masterpiece Cake Shop for two reasons. So it's important for listeners to get this. Part was uh, he's a devout evangelical, and he takes seriously Jesus's admonition that you can't serve two masters, God and Mammon. And so he wants to say that in every cake. He designs and creates, he's serving his master, um, Jesus, right? God, right? Uh, but then the other reason is that he views himself not just as a baker. I mean, this isn't just a bakery. It's masterpiece cake shop because he's creating masterpieces of art. He's a cake artist, which is why, again, you know, if you're getting married, why do you spend so much money for the wedding cake, not for the wedding salad, right? There's no such thing as like a wedding salad where you walk into a room and you're like, wow, that's a beautiful wedding salad, right? But you do, you can walk into a room and know that the event that we are celebrating is a wedding or a birthday or a retirement because the cake conveys a message. And that was his argument here was that this is compelled speech. You were asking me to help say something, to help celebrate something through my visual art. Uh, and, and just because the visual art was also edible, right? It was edible art, doesn't in any way lessen the fact that it was communicative, right? It, art expresses, it's expressive, and it was saying something. And in America, uh, we have a First Amendment, which prohibits compelled speech. Um, the government cannot force you to speak a message with which you disagree, nor can another person force you to do that with the government kind of like fining you if you refuse to do it. So I can't sue, sue you saying that you have to do a podcast on XYZ topic and you have to say you know, positive things about the book under review. You have that freedom as, as a journalist. And so too should other people who engage in speech. Uh, we're seeing this um, erode all across American society, right? And so you, there's an intersection here of just a weakening for uh, intellectual freedom, academic freedom, the freedom of speech, uh, intersecting, corresponding with um, a decline in beliefs about the nature of marriage. And when those things come together, that's when you get the problems for someone like Jack Phillips. 
I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Yeah, I was just going to say that the book is worth reading. Even if even if someone's not interested in marriage at all, it's worth reading as an as a commentary and a warning about the the increasing encroachment on free, on free speech everywhere. But I just want to mention, you mentioned the Jack Phillips case, and I want to recommend to listeners that there's a wonderful video featuring you and the, the gay activist scholar, John Curvino, and your other and your other co-authors on the the website of the James Madison program at Princeton. And that video is called a license to discriminate masterpiece cake shop, the first amendment and anti-discrimination law. And it was, that was the panel discussion was in 2018 and it's well worth watching the entire thing. You can even just listen to it while you're working on something else because it's really, and it's, it's to your, to your credit that you and John Carvino have, have, I've done other podcasts in which I've asked people, what are examples of gentlemen or, you know, amicable and and worthwhile productive discussion among people of very opposed opposed views and you and Carvino have been mentioned several times as, as exemplars of that so I recommend that people watch that it's very easy to find you go to the James Madison website and just type in masterpiece or cake shop and you'll find that video it's it's, it's really rewarding viewing um, thank you I, I appreciate uh, John, John is very um, I mean a lot of that credit goes to John and being a very generous and charitable interlocutor Yes, very much so. And, and, and I think those are the sorts of virtues um, that, um, you know, we as a, as a people need to be um, developing and fostering and encouraging is, you know, how do you agree to disagree? How do you disagree without being disagreeable? How do we mm-hmm. live together in a society where, you know, we're diverse, we're pluralistic, and we're not all going to agree about you know the, the most important things in life, but we have to be neighbors. Um, and it strikes me that that's becoming more and more difficult to do in the United States, and it's going to be a huge challenge in the years to come uh, because I don't see a, um, I, I do not foresee either the right or the left, either you know devout religious people or kind of like progressive secular people uh, triumphing. You know, once and for all a victory. I just see disagreements continuing. And so then the question becomes, well, how do you navigate those disagreements? How do you live in the midst of disagreements when it's not as if, you know, either Trump supporters or Biden supporters are about to have 100% of the support. We're going to be a 50-50 country for a while. Yeah, I was just going to say in that video that Carvino addresses what you mentioned, dignitary harm, and you both have a very lucid, a, a loose, a, 
a lucid and helpful discussion about that that concept. And both of you make just sterling points. But I'll get back to the book. Actually, um, uh, you you were talking about um, you were just speaking about the polarization of after the election and Biden and so forth. And the day after the election, I believe that they they argued before the Supreme Court the case of Fulton versus Philadelphia. And I'd like you to discuss that. And I'd like, before you do, I'd like to ask, is that an even more important case than Masterpiece Cake Shop in that it involves not just small business and religious liberty, but the very shape of families, the rights of foster and adoptive parents, and most crucially, the immediate and long-term needs of children, which you discuss very movingly in the book. You talk about how all of this affects children in particular, how they're begat and what and how they're raised. And you're and it's very sweet that you you all of you co-authors dedicate the book to your parents, which is rather touching in the, in this respect. Could you discuss Fulton's versus Philadelphia? I got off on I waxed about like waxed no, that's like, that's great. <laughs> I mean the, the 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 this is a foster care case out of Philadelphia where um, the city government um, refused to allow the Catholic social services um, to do any more foster placements. And I mean, what, what's worth pointing out is that the Catholic Church in Philadelphia has been taking care of orphans uh, longer than the government has. Um, that the first foster agency in Philadelphia mm-hmm. was a Catholic agency, and the Order of Nuns started taking care of these children in need. And now the government is saying, unless you do it our way, you can't do it at all. And so this has implications not just for the free exercise of religion, um, not just for um, uh, the well-being of children. Um, it has implications for you know whether or not um, uh, people who think that marriage unites husband and wife will be able to run religious institutions in accordance with that belief. Right? So not just adoption and foster care agency, but what about schools? What about uh, homeless shelters that you know want to have you know married housing for married couples, but not uh, for alternative couples, what does this mean for um, uh, um, uh, marriage therapists who want to be able to, you know, provide therapy for marriage cu- married couples and not for others? M- my sense is that the court will um, uh, uh, treat this um, a bit more narrowly. Um, I, I, I don't think we're going to see a sweeping ruling. Mm. Uh, uh, I, I'm I'm debating with myself, kind of like um, how deep to go in the weeds here, but I mean, part of the problem is that the, the way in which, actually, so let me just say a little bit more about the fact pattern here. There were 30 different foster, there are 30 foster agencies in Philadelphia. 29 of them uh, work with same-sex couples. Right? So Catholic Social Services is the only couple uh, that doesn't um, uh, place children with same-sex couples. And no same-sex couple had ever gone to Catholic Social Services. There was never a complaint filed against Catholic social services. The city uh, picked this fight on its own. They had seen a news report saying that Catholic social services um, doesn't do this sort of work. And then they launched an investigation and then they ultimately um, punished uh, the agency. And the question that's interesting here, that it's an, if it wasn't an individual in this case, it wasn't, say, a lesbian couple going into an organ bakery this time. It was the city that was saying, we we are now adhering to these norms and we are going to harass a nonprofit, a, small, a nonprofit, which is providing social services to our to our community. That's so bizarre. It's just turning everything on its head of what a city is supposed to be doing. But Yeah. And, 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 and so the way they put it is that, well, you know, you receive a government contract and we won't allow anyone to contract with the government who um, uh, discriminates on the basis of a protected class. Um, now, the reason that they receive a government tra- contract is that 
um, foster children are wards of the state, wards of the city in this case. And so you can't do any work in the foster space without intersecting with the government, right? The, the government has now um, taken over a monopoly of this space. And now they're kind of like selectively partnering with religious institutions. This was one of the questions that Amy Coney Barrett posed during oral arguments saying, well, wait a minute, what yeah, if the I government- I was going to ask about that. I was surprised there wasn't a demand. Well, you should be, you should recuse yourself because you're a Catholic mother of adopted children and you have, you're obviously biased. So I was surprised that she escaped, you know, appropriium and the tax on that, in that, and her, you know, her integrity and whether or not she had a right to even hear the case. So that was interesting that, that she got through without that. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, and look, some people, I mean, what judge doesn't have personal beliefs, right? Mm. And so, um, Judges have um, opinions on the merits of all sorts of questions. Um, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg had opinions about the morality of abortion, the morality of same-sex marriage. And ideally, every judge is supposed to um, rule based upon the law, not based upon their um, uh, uh, their own best judgments about, you know, kind of what justice in the cosmic sense looks like. They're supposed to be ruling what judgment in this case based upon you know, American law based upon constitutional law, based upon the laws of Philadelphia, whatever the, the jurisdiction is. But, but what, what I want to highlight about um, Amy Coney Barrett's question was she said, well, what if the, the government um, uh, took over all of healthcare and took over, you know, they now had a monopoly on healthcare. Could they then tell Catholic hospitals um, that they wouldn't be allowed to continue um, uh, receiving, you know, a grant or a contract from the government uh, unless they do abortions. Uh, so mm. in the same way that like the, the government now has a monopoly with respect to a historic religious function, taking care of widows and orphans, um, could the government now take a monopoly of a historic religious function, healing the sick, and then say, unless you do it our way, you can't do it at all, right? And so that's the precedent that's concerned here. So there's precedents about, you know, religious liberty and the mission of religious charitable activities. And there's also a concern about what does this mean um, simply about, is it um, a, a form of discrimination to say children deserve a mom and a dad, right? And then well, government course- hostility here, right? Because the government is the one that picked the fight here. That's why I'm saying there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot going on in this case, um, uh, um, not just about religious liberty, not just about you know the, the belief that children deserve a mom and a dad, not just about um, the government singling out a religious institution to try to you know kind of pick a fight with. It's all of this stuff at the same time. Well, I was just going to say it's it's a matter of competence too, because the foster care in the Pacific Northwest and throughout the nation at this point there is criticism of states contracting out to commercial entities and and not and which is just and it's not like they have this great track record of of, of treat of non of, of just superb service to the children under their care but i was just going to say that um um in terms of i was just hearkening back to the to the the idea that you have done another video i'd like to mention that about Several several weeks ago, I believe at the Heritage Foundation, you interviewed several foster mothers about this case, and it was very interesting to hear from that from the horse's mouth in that case about how they depend on the the, the religious religious religiously based adopted agencies right now for for care in terms of referral and becoming adoptive parents. So it's a continuum of they become foster parents, and the the agencies help them become foster parents, and they were just talking about 
the havoc that will result if these if increasingly are deprived of these agencies. And I, I just would recommend that that video to, to people. I thought you 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 yourself were the moderator, and the women were very affecting and very um, on target. Um, and there was a, law, a, a lawyer who spoke uh, and who represented actually who had, who had argued it for the. I think she was one of the people involved in that case, wasn't she? One of the women you interviewed. She um, yeah, it's Lori Windham. She had argued the previous uh, day at the uh, Supreme Court. She was the lawyer who represented. Uh, the foster agency, Catholic Social Services, um, defending their their freedom, their right to continue serving children and families in need, and w- and what the and what the mothers pointed out was that, you know, fostering a child and then possibly one day, you know, adopting a child, it's not like uh, renewing renewing your driver's license, right? Where you go to the DMV, you wait in line, you fill out some paperwork, and then you get your certification. It's a very uh, intensive process. And it involves not just like material needs, but all sorts of emotional and spiritual, you know, welcoming a new human life into your family. And those needs might be best served not by like the government institution. Um, You know, governments can't minister to the whole person, the spiritual needs, the emotional needs. So religious, you know, the government partnering with religious institutions might actually produce the best outcome precisely because the religious institutions uh, can work miracles in a way that secular bureaucratic government institutions can't, uh, which isn't to you know criticize. There are very there there, there are lots of really good uh, social workers who work directly for the state, but there's also a role for um, people who are working in religious institutions who can complement that. And so there's no reason, as you said, you know why is this the government, you know, picking a fight trying to uh, um, shut down. Uh, agencies that are working to help children. We should have as many agencies as possible uh, working on these issues because we have children in need. Yeah, the argument is always on the left. Well, diversity is wonderful. Well, not here it isn't. Not, no, no, we have to have everything uniform and, and secular and so forth. Um, one of the, the questions, uh, to circle back to, I let, I let, I, I did not stick to what I was <laughs> going to ask you about in terms of, of the book when you mentioned the book, the continuum from the the um, Bergefeld, how that led to the explosion in the transgender movement. And I wonder that to me, that was kind of a, I didn't realize the two were so closely intertwined. Could you could you discuss that again? Sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, this was um, it was you you had packed so much into one of the questions oh, yeah. about how, you know, why, <laughs> you're, why no, it's OK, because, you know, why reissue the book? Um, you know, yeah, and one of the reasons yeah. one of the reasons was um, we just want to be um, reminding people and, and equipping people to make the case for the truth about what marriage is. Another reason is they're going to be all these religious liberty um, uh, discussions. And then another reason was that, you know, we added an afterward. Uh, pointing out how the redefinition of marriage um, has accelerated the redefinition of gender uh, and how, you know, something that we didn't foresee in 2012 when we wrote the book um, was how today we would be discussing whether or not, um, you know, children, prepubescent children should be placed on puberty blocking drugs if they don't feel comfortable in their own bodies. Uh, and, and there's a lot that can be said here. I, I've written an entire book on this question. Yeah. But I mean, one of the things worth pointing out is that um, this wasn't by happenstance either politically or philosophically. Politically, the activists, you have LGBT activists. And for decades, we were talking about the LG part of that, uh, the gay marriage part of that, the 
marriage equality part of that. And when the activists saw that they were going to win at the Supreme Court, they pivoted from the LGB to the T part of the acronym. And that was when uh, Bruce Jenner, as he was then known, went on 2020 and announced that you know he was going to become a woman. He now identifies as a woman. He now is a woman, right? And you can see the, the, the stronger claims being made in each of those three sentences. Uh, and then it was um, just a few months after the Supreme Court redefined marriage in Obergefell that the Obama administration issued their dear colleague letter telling all of the nation's schools that they would have to redo the bathrooms, the locker rooms, the athletic policies. Um, and so that was the kind of like the political muscle. This was not a grassroots movement of like, you know, a bunch of soccer moms saying, you know, we're now in favor of, of um, uh, gender identity policies and transgender uh, policies. But then on the, the, the philosophical side, the metaphysical side is that, you know, both of these movements have a lot um, in common with respect to kind of a body self dualism in which the body is just a costume. The body is just a vehicle. And the real self is an immaterial center of consciousness. It's a um, center of desire. It's an expressive self. Uh, so expressive individualism is um, a big part of this as well. And when you combine expressive individualism with body self-dualism, you're going to see that what really matters is who me, the expressive individual is. And I can use my body to express that in various ways. And one might be with a same-sex partner in a same-sex relationship where the body is used as a way of symbolizing our unity, where no real bodily union is um, uh, achieved. And then likewise, with the gender identity bit, is that um, if my real gender identity and the gender that I want to express, my gender expression, is at odds with, quote, the sex assigned at birth, then the body can be changed through puberty blocking mm -hmm. drugs, through hormones, through surgery, so that the body now expresses the self, right? And so there's a, there's a self somewhere in here. It's a non-bodily self that somehow utilizes and, you know, um, uh, 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 wears a costume of a body. And then this body can give expression to the self. And if the body um, has somehow um, been misaligned, the task isn't to align the thoughts and the feelings with the body, but it's to transform the body to align it with the thoughts and the feelings. Yes, I was just going to, I was going to say that um, there's some very good, in fact, you interviewed Carter Sneed, who has a book about, about the, bringing the body back into the argument. And you're, so you all, you all are, are in Carl Truman as well in his new book. And it's very, it's very helpful for people to say, well, the people that said, oh, well, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm an easygoing, tolerant person. Sure. I think there should be same sex marriage and they must, they must look back and think, whoa, I didn't sign up for 13 year old girls being able to decide that they were, you know, <laughs> that they could force their parents, take their parents to court in order to make their parents recognize their new identity. And all this, it's really a, 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 a brave new world in that respect. And it's, and, and there are, I mean, so, so um, a, a couple of things there. One is that you're, you're exactly right. The Carl Truman book, and the Carter Sneed book are both outstanding. And they both show like the importance of the body, the importance of a sound anthropology and how the rise of dualism and uh, expressive individualism really explains so many of the 
um, debates that we're having. So these aren't just debates about public policy or about law. These are debates about what it means to be a person. Um, so, you know, the book we're discussing is, you know, what is marriage? Um, I was, uh, um, the book that I ended up writing about um, the transgender issues, you know, when I first pitched it to the editor, I, I said, you know, maybe we need a book titled, you know, what is a person, you know, or what are humans uh, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, it's not just, you know, what is marriage that's being questioned here, but it's really human nature that's being questioned. Um, but then the, well, the, the well, thank you thought, for some fascinating political. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. I was just gonna say, and then the other thought that I had in, in response to your question was that it's worth remembering that there are some very interesting disagreements within the LGBT uh, acronym. Yeah, I was just going to uh, say and, that. And you the, the whole this, transgender, it, trans-exclusionary, I love that, that acronym, trans-exclusionary radical feminists, the TERFs, T-E-R-S. And they're, they're arguing, they're often heterosexual radical women who are saying, minute, I don't want some men telling me that my feminism is not what I have believed it is for decades. <laughs> it's it's yep. almost comical. <laughs> and, 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 and what's interesting here is that, so, I mean, I, I, I have worked with um, some of these women who I, I, I view, you know, they're, they're, they're heroic, they're courageous because, um, you know, they're one of the few people willing to um, uh, speak truth to power on the way in which children are being harmed by gender ideology. And, and they disagree with me about gay marriage. Um, they're in favor of um, uh, same-sex marriage, and they know that I'm not. Uh, they disagree with me about the relationship between redefining marriage and um, uh, redefining gender in some of today's transgender battles. And they're like, look, we're just going to have to agree to disagree about those things. What we do agree about is that biology isn't bigotry, that the body is not the problem. And what they point out is, you know, um, their lesbian relationships and their uh, 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 same-sex marriage has never uh, uh, changed the body of a young person, right? In order for them to, you know, love another woman and live with another woman and have a marriage license from the government, it didn't require mutilating the body of anyone. And so these things are radically different. Um, and, and and they're entirely right to point that out. Um, it doesn't. And it's not just it's not just mutilating the body, but don't they have to remain on this very heavy drug regime for the rest of their lives, right? Or do, I once, mean, the hormones. Once you remove the hormone producing organs, um, so um, if you've had not just kind of puberty blocking drugs and then cross sex hormones, but then you've had the surgery that removes your natural um, kind of like sex hormone producing organs then whether you continue with transitioning or you decide to detransition, you're going to need to be reliant on an endocrinologist to give you synthetic uh, sex hormones. And they also point out that um, uh, their same-sex relationship has never violated anyone's privacy rights. You know, they're not going in the opposite sex bathrooms, um, anyone's safety. They're not staying in a battered woman's shelter when they're a biological male. Anyone's equality, right? They're not trying to, you know, compete against high school girls when they're a high school male. Um, and so while the acronym LGBT was put together, I think largely for kind of political and advocacy reasons, you know, they want to point out that you don't even need to be kind of like, a, um, a conservative religious person to see the discontinuities. Uh, many of these women are, you know, progressive, secular uh, individuals, and they say that the LGB is radically different than the T. 
And so we need to not just um, kind of like unthinkingly say, well, look, I'm an ally and therefore whatever, you know, the official spokespeople of LGBT Inc. Um, uh, demand, I'm going to go along with. Like we need to be able to think critically and think independently. Uh, and many of these women are just exemplars of that, at that. Um, and, and the organization that I just want to mention, it's the Women's Liberation Front has been doing, you know, really uh, courageous work in this area and, and frequently uh, on their own, right? None of the other uh, kind of like feminist groups want to partner with them. Uh, and in this case, like J.K. Rowling <laughs> has been really courageous. And Andrew Sullivan, right? One of the, the most prominent, and I think one of the most um, thoughtful uh, uh, and you're making the conservative case for same-sex marriage, has said, wait a minute, you're, you, something has gone wrong if you're telling me I'm transphobic because I'm not interested in men with ladies' body parts. Like the entire reason why I'm a gay man is that I'm attracted to the male body. And just saying that you identify as a man doesn't make it so. And so, you know, I'm not transphobic when I am not interested in um, romantically, um, you know, women who identify as men. Um, and those are just some of the, you know, there's some contradictions here uh, with, with that acronym of LGBT, um, just given, you know, can the L and the um, uh, 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 G stand um, uh, fully coherently with the T? That, that, that's going to be the question moving forward. Yeah. And then again, as, as Sullivan says, I mean, he get pilloried for just expressing his sexuality, which he fought for decades to be able to express. And now he has to, oh, I have to, I have to adhere to your standards suddenly. And so, uh, well, uh, one of the things I wanted to, to ask, uh, um, to, well, actually we're, we're almost out of time. So I'd like to ask you the traditional final question, but I do, I wish I do want to say to emphasize to, to listeners that the book is, and just a model of inter, of multidisciplinary uh, scholarship because you cover moral philosophy, law, public policy, sociology, child development. It's it's just uh, just a plus, it's amazing what you reveal to pack in a very short book. And also, uh, if I can wax sentimental again, it was very moving as a uh, as a paint as a tribute to. The beauty of it's kind of interesting because you you argue against seeing marriage exclusively as, as an emotional bond, but it's a very emotionally rich book in the terms of the beauty of marriage and, and what it can mean to people. And then out, and it's one of the few times in my own life I thought, gosh, I, I really wish I had been married. <laughs> it's such a, it's such a moving tribute to to that state of of life. And, and and but I have taken up a lot of your time, Ryan. Now I'd like to ask you the traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on? now i know for example that you're active on twitter but you're you have two you have a foot in a, a the think tank world and you have a foot in academia and you're just all over the place what are what is specifically are you is your major project so what, what i've moment? been um working on the most um uh, recently you know while we're we've all been like kind of like working from our basements during um covid has really just been like reading the intellectual history of how we got here um and that's why the um, the Carl Truman book is so good. The Carter Sneed book is so good because, you know, they're doing some of this work. So I've been reading a lot of Charles Taylor, uh, Alistair McIntyre, um, uh, some, some of the thinkers that trace the intellectual genealogy. Patrick Deneen has done a lot of this um, work as well. Um, and, and then my take isn't quite what Deneen's take is, um, um, uh, but, but I don't think he's without insights either. And so I'm trying to think through, you know, of modernity, you know, what's the good, what's the bad, you know, what, what's the ugly, you know, what, what needs to be 
um, uh, held on to what needs to be kind of rejected. Uh, I wrote an essay maybe two years ago with Robbie George titled The Baby of the Bathwater uh, with the idea. I read that. I recommend it. It's on public discourse. And it was it was a very it's a superb. If you were trying to, to explain to a lay to a lay readers what the controversy among um, conservatives and social conservatives were, and it was it parsed it very helpfully to, to me as a as a non philosopher. It was very I recommend it. Could you tell us again the title? Sure, it's it's titled "The Baby in the Bathwater," and and, and and what that image conjures up is, you know, how do we avoid throwing the baby out with the bathwater? And so some people will say, "Well, look, we got to keep both the baby and the bathwater. Nothing's wrong. There's nothing worth rethinking," and we think that's a mistake. And then other people think, "Look, everything's the problem, and we got just got to throw it all out and you know burn it all down, start over." We think that's a problem, right? And so the question is, like, you know, how do you distinguish between what's you know worth holding on to and what um, is necessary to discard. How do you, you know, protect the baby while throwing out um, the bathwater? So that's the image that we use, and that's just been you know when you ask what's been occupying my time. That's a um, it's a multifaceted, it's a deep uh, question about history, about theology, about philosophy, about political theory, economics. Like how do we think through our current um, uh, situation, and then what's going to be an effective response? Well, in terms of your reading, it's 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 very clear that that your book, "What Is Marriage, Man and Woman: A Defense," is just redolent with scholarship of a very high order, indeed. And I recommend it highly because it's very it's very easy to obtain, and it's very it's very quick reading. Actually, it doesn't doesn't it, you can do it in in a day. And with that, I will just thank the scholar we've been talking to today, Ryan T. Anderson, one of the authors of that book, "What Is Marriage, Man and Woman: A Defense." And thank you, listeners. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye, Ryan.